Welcome to the L2 Podcast, a weekly recording of the gathering at L2 Church in Denver, Colorado. Our current series is entitled Defragmented. Because the Bible can feel like a bunch of disconnected parts with no overarching purpose or meaning, our own lives can feel similar. In this series, we are seeking to show how piecing back together the overarching narrative of Scripture can help us find our context within the Bible story. Deuteronomy 7, 6-14 For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to see you all. It's good to be back, actually. Um, uh, yesterday, I received a text that said, are you going to be talking about the election? I said, no, I'm talking about election, but not the election. Um, uh, that's Wednesday night. Um, we're, our backstage that meets downstairs at 6.30, that is kind of an open forum. Um, a, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, and we have people across the whole spectrum in this, in this room right now, plus those watching online, no matter where you are in, uh, in regard to that, you're going to have to figure out how your faith expresses itself. Over the next several years, you cannot depend on anyone outside of you to be the person that you need to be. And so now's the time. You need to start figuring out that no matter who is in office, that can't execute your faith for you. That has to come from the inside. And so now's the time that every single one of us has to say, okay, in light of these things, what type of human being do I, do I have to be? So I encourage you to, uh, to be there on Wednesday night. This morning, um, this is the third part of an eight-part series that we're doing on, we've called it Defragmented, and this particular sermon's been titled Redemption Initiated because it's following the first two sermons that James did, the one on the garden that talked about creation and the intention that God had for the world, and then the one last week that talked about the fall and how this world does not work 
for us the way it was intended to. It's working against us. Um, today we're coming to the biggest part of this series. Um, the, the, the burden I have today is to teach you the whole Old Testament. So I hope you brought your lunch. Um, no, seriously, we're going to be able to kind of pull this apart. Now, the, the why statement of this whole series, I think, is just phenomenal. It really kind of grasps what we're after in this series. It's basically this question. Does your faith cause you to perceive an overarching purpose in your life that you're actually making progress towards? Now, I can tell you as a coach and a counselor that the majority of us sitting in this room and those of you probably watching online, the answer to that has to be an overwhelming no. We don't know. We're trying to figure out the number one question by Christians as well as non-Christians today is, I don't know what to do. If you're a Christian, it kind of sounds like this. I wish I knew what God's will was for me. And so today we've got a tall task. We're trying to show you that what has happened over the last, I think, couple of centuries is that there, there are people inside of Christianity as well as outside of Christianity that have really begun to see the Bible as broken bits and pieces. And by doing that, it has pushed us away into a perception of the Bible that it's just become kind of quaint moral lessons or it really has become kind of a regressive dogma to people in our society. It's not attractive to very many people outside of Christianity and it's difficult for many of us inside of Christianity to continue to hold on it. So in eight short weeks, what we're going to try to do is to show you a narrative of the Bible that kind of shows you the story again. Now, according to Bartholomew and Goheen, two modern scholars, they are beginning to show that researchers are, are attributing this fragmentation to the decline of the whole entire church. Um, I'll read you this quote. It says, Australian sociologist John Carroll, who does not profess to be a Christian, believes that the reason that the church in the West is in trouble is because it has forgotten its story. The Christian churches, excuse me, in his view, the waning of Christianity as practiced in the West is easy to explain. The Christian churches have comprehensively failed in their one central task, to retell their foundation story in a way that might speak to the times. I could not agree more with that. Now, there's some of you in this room that have obtained over decades of faith You've obtained a fairly comprehensive understanding of doctrine, of Christian history. Um, but in the process, perhaps you've begun to see the Bible in this disjointed view. There's some of you that are in this room that are brand new Christians, and you really are just trying to figure out how to scope the Bible. You've tried to read every January. You try to commit yourself, and you get to Exodus or Leviticus, and it just seems so dry. You're thinking, what in the world is this good for? And that's very valid. A very valid apprehension. And I think some of this comes from this fragmentation. So throughout the how of this series, that throughout the series we're exploring how the breaking up of the Bible into those disconnected bits has caused us really to miss not only the beauty and the power of the Scripture, but we've also lost our sense of identity. We don't know what the purpose is for our lives. And so as we kind of push into this today and start to look at the Old Testament, what we're going to, I'm going to try to show you as daunting of a task as that is, and it is. I've, for three weeks I've been thinking about this, um, of how we do that. But 
I think I can show you a way that simplifies all of the judges and all of the kings and all of the prophets that represent almost two-thirds of your Bible into a simple pattern of how God initiated redemption. After everything flooded to the ground in the garden, something began to happen, and that pattern has been repeated throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. So we're going to look at that pattern, and then I'm going to try to show you the so what. How does that help us? How does that begin to cause us to regain not only a coherency of a Bible that speaks in a, in a huge story, but more specifically, how does that begin to show us who we are? and what we should be living for, what we should be doing. So when we look at this first part, I want to show you the pattern of God's covenants. Now, covenantalism is a whole system of theology that most of us did not grow up in. Some of you did, many of us did not. Um, covenantalism shows the continuity of Scripture. And so when you take a step back and you begin to look at how God has initiated redemption after the fall, you begin to see very quickly this pattern emerge. Now, throughout the history of Christianity, the gospel message has been described as a salvation by grace, what? Through faith. By grace, through faith. And so all of Christianity was given that little shorthand handle. It is a salvation that was given by God, by grace, through faith. Now, as God initiates this redemptive purpose in the Old Testament, the pattern of all of the covenants follow this pattern. It's got grace, which is his love and promise in it, and it's got also in it faith or obligation. And so the grace and the promise is conveyed in a covenant that God takes people and he breaks into space and time and he brings them into this covenant and he shows him his love and his grace. He doesn't do that with anyone. One of the most remarkable parts about the Old Testament is the fact that it's one teeny little nation that God is showing his love to, not the whole entire world. And so his grace and his, grace and his promise that is breaking in is an initiative that God's undertaking, but those covenants also have the second part in them, this part of faith and obligation. In other words, he requires of people in the covenant to participate in the covenant. He doesn't just move them along in a, in a mechanical way. And so there's an obligation that comes with this, with this grace and promise. So I want to start by kind of breaking down this first point in the promise. We see it in verse 6, where Moses actually leads out two very crucial components here. And the first part, he bestows upon the nation of Israel this unique identity that God is beginning to perceive them, make them his treasured possession among all the people of the world. That is an amazingly exclusive statement that God is making him, he has become, they are becoming rather his treasure and his possession as opposed to the whole rest of the world. And the second part that we see in that first verse is that he also states that the immediate cause of that identity isn't them, it's God. Now those are remarkable things to look at in the very beginning of this initiation of redemption. Now, if you first pull apart the unique distinction of Israel alone being the chosen and treasured possession of God, you, you should be able to recall it in your mind's eye that that's exactly what happened. Other than one little missionary excursion by Jonah, a reluctant one at that, 
God allowed sojourners to join Israel nationally. If they wanted to become a Jew, they had a way to do that. But other than Jonah, there was no missionary outpost. There was no missionary excursion sent to the outside nations. Those nations perished apart from Israel. Now, so you begin to see the identity is just what he said is peculiar. It's unique. But you also see that since the time of the fall, the Bible never describes people looking or reaching out to God. On the contrary, it shows God breaking in, whether it's with Noah, whether it's with Abraham, whether it was with Jacob and Isaac, or Isaac and Jacob, rather. And you, you have God breaking in and initiating this union, this relationship with people. And so the, the, that is a remarkable economy or condensement in which Moses is just able to say, you alone represent this initiated redemption. And it's not you. It's him and you. And so we see that these promises are really unique, that they're not only do they have an identity, but they've been brought into a redemptive purpose that, ironically, humanity was the the agent of the fall. And to, to think that God would recoup or redeem part of that rebellion and make it the, the outworking of his redemptive purpose is truly astounding. And so we see that in the economy of the single verse that you have this promise. Now in verses 7 and 8, they describe the basis of the relationship between God and Israel, and the description starts actually with a surprising negation that explains that God's choice of Israel was not due to the fact that they were the greatest of the nations. They did not believe, they shouldn't have been on the varsity, is basically what he's saying. He said, you're the least of people. In other words, if God had a, like a kickball team in heaven, if he had lined up all the nations, he said, you would have been picked last. You, you would have been the one that nobody wanted on their team. That's what he did with you. It's a remarkable statement. And so verses 7 and 8 are really stating the, the description or the basis of it. And it was because of his sovereign love that God had promised to their fathers that he redeemed them not only from the hand of Pharaoh, but he now is on the cusp of creating and giving them a land within a framework of all the other nations that make them peculiar and unique. Now, when you come to verses 12 to 14, there's a description of the promise of blessing that God extends to his people as they live according to the rules and then they do them. In other words, there's a blessing, there's a promise, but it's built in to an obligation or responsibility to uphold what God has told them to do. Now, if you pull this apart just for a moment and you think, what would have happened if God shows grace and favor to Noah, and he tells him, Noah, I am going to destroy the earth and I'm going to save you and your family, only eight people out of a whole entire world, but you need to build an ark. And he did it for the next hundred years. Then the flood came and God preserved them. What would have happened if Noah said, I'm not going to build an ark? It hasn't even, most historians and theologians think it hadn't even rained yet. And Noah's thinking, what am I going to do? For a hundred years, just me and my son are going to feverishly, slavishly build this boat that God has built me a plan. And he just said, no, I won't do it. What if Abraham said, I'm not going to leave Ur of the Chaldees. I'm not going to circumcise my foreskin and all the men in my home. I'm not going to kill my son Isaac. Could they have continued? 
See, we don't know that because the picture of this initiated redemption is one of God breaking in, establishing relationship with human beings, rebellious ones at that, changing their hearts and showing them what to do, all in very important pieces in this, this whole process. So there's the promise in this first glimpse of the covenant that we're looking at this morning. The second part is the obligation, and we see that in verses 9 to 11. Another aspect of this covenant that I've talked about so much is in this pattern throughout the Old Testament is that every covenant came with obligation. Now, this is what John Frame calls an ethical ought. And if, if I was to ask you, what is two plus two? What does that equal? Well, for most of us, four. For most of us, right? There's an ethical obligation for you who know arithmetic. For you to think four. You can't say, I have a right to think five, or I have a right to think any other number but four. And so there's an ethical duty or an ethical obligation that came from the revelation that God imparted through each and every one of these covenants. We can't capriciously go back and to say, I can be right with God if I start building a boat in my backyard. That's not going to work. And so there's an immediacy in which God establishes this covenant in which he now discloses information to the participants of the covenant in a way that they're obligated to continue in. And that's exactly what we see here. The condition of the covenant is not an entrance into the covenant because God's grace has been established as the cause of that. But the continuance of the covenant is incumbent on those who participate. So in verses 9 to 11, we see an explanation that God is faithful. He's a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. In other words, those who participate in the covenants of God are brought into a covenant exclusively by the love and the grace of God, but the terms of the covenant require them to obey the rules of the covenant laid down by God. And verse 10 has a stern warning to those who would presume to be in the covenant and still refuse to abide by its obligation. This could not be any clearer in any other part of Scripture than it is right here. Now this typifies, as I said earlier, the whole Old Testament. As mentioned earlier, the Christianity teaches that we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by our own effort. But this pattern of this covenant, these covenants that God initiates redemption in in the Old Testament, every one of them follows its consistent pattern of promise and obligation. With Noah, it was a promise, I'll save you, an obligation to build an ark. With Abraham, another famous covenant, where you have promises to the fore. I will make you into the greatest nation of all the nations. You're a single man. But I want you to leave your homeland. I want you to circumcise yourself and all the males in your home. And by the way, this promise of a child that will come, I expect you to offer him to me, which we know God diverted that. But it demonstrated a faithfulness on Abraham's part that was truly remarkable. And so we see this pattern over and over again. In each and every redemptive covenant in the Old Testament, the pattern consistently offers promises to and establishes obligations for those who would participate in God's covenants. Deuteronomy 28, you have an entire chapter split in half. Do this and live. Don't do it and die. Choose today. Now, this begs the question, how does that help us? How does that help us? We're 19 minutes in since Catherine first stepped up to start reading. 
How do you gain something from this? Most of you, I think, would have to admit that you've never read through the whole entire Old Testament. Most Christians haven't. There's many of you, thankfully, that I think have, perhaps even several times. But that doesn't mean that you necessarily have this coherent conclusion that allows you to say, well, this is how it helps me. Or is it something you just put in a distant past to say, I thank God we're not living like that anymore. See, I think we, it's a very pertinent question. How does this actually help us? Now, everything we've said so far, I think, begs the question, not only how does this defragment our Bible and put it back together, but most importantly, how does this understanding the story give me a sense of my own identity, a sense of my purpose in this world? Now, I think in general, it's true to say that understanding the covenants of God, that is actually the only way that, to see continuity of redemption. The way most of us were taught, it's stress, these little broken pieces, it did it for us. We didn't even have to do it. We just accepted what people told us. And so it's taking a step back and to say, wow, this pattern is perfectly consistent in all of these covenants that I see. And so suddenly the judges and all the kings and all the rebellion and the prophets that would come and talk about Jesus coming, it is all speaking into these covenants, every last word. It, it begins to pull it together. But beyond that, I think that there are two fairly significant things that I want you to take away from this today that really do help us. The first is it helps us better understand and explain redemption. There's many of in this room that have never figured out how to broach the issue of redemption. Because in your mind, you just know that people, have they're sick of hearing that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If you died today and God asked you why he should let you into heaven, what would you tell him? Those answers, those boats don't float anymore. Not in our culture. And there has to be an improved way that we understand and explain redemption. That's the first benefit. The second benefit is that I think understanding this helps you better understand God's love, your own identity, and his will for your life. So let's open up this first one. This first one of understanding and explaining redemption. I'm only going to say a couple of words about this, but over the past 400 years since the Protestant Reformation, the church has been cast into this kind of a quandary, a tension between two very difficult questions. Norman Shepard coined these questions this way. He said, how do you preach grace without suggesting that it makes no difference what your lifestyle is like? How do you tell people that they're going to be saved by grace and and yet them come away thinking that there's an obligation. The second question, how do you preach repentance without calling into question salvation by grace apart from works? Those are a dilemma. Any of you that have tried to share your faith with anyone, even your own children, you found yourself on the horns of that dilemma. Now, the church for the most part, I can tell you in the United States in the 20th century, has erred on the side of saying, God doesn't expect anything from you. In other words, you can pray to receive Jesus and you can receive him as your Savior, but you, do, you don't even have to follow him as your Lord. But that seems to break a pattern of two-thirds of your Bible is already established, that somehow there's promise but no obligation in it. And so these are difficult. Now listen to how Norman Shepherd, I think, brilliantly kind of navigates through this. This is what he says in this tension. He said, The answer to this dilemma is to be found in the doctrine of the covenant. 
with his two parts, promise and obligation. In keeping with his eternal purposes, the Lord, the Lord God brings us into covenant with himself. All of the blessings of the covenant are ours as gifts of sovereign grace. The, covenant, the covenantal demand for faith, repentance, and obedience is simply the way in which the Lord teaches us or leads us into possession of these blessings. I'm going to come back and explain that, but let me finish the quote. Salvation is both by grace and through faith. These are the two parts of the covenant, grace and faith, promise and obligation. Grace is not without conditions, and a living and active faith is not meritorious achievement. It is the biblical doctrine of covenant that enables us to sail safely through these terms are going to be hard. Scylla, uh, uh, the, the Scylla of legalism and the Char Charybdis of antinomianism. Two, those were two Greek warring or dangerous gods that they believed in. And he said, this is the only way we can get through it. And I'm telling you, many of you can relax in understanding this. Because it allows you to understand redemption. There's never been a single human being Paul writes, as, as uh, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 says, that there's this blindness in all of us, that we've all turned aside. There's none who does good. There's none who seek after God. Paul writes the same thing in Romans 3 and verse 10 to 12. And so there's never been a one of us that have reached out to God on our own. But God faithfully and continually today reaches into the lives of people and makes them alive. He brings them into covenant. But those covenants always possess two things, promise an obligation. Now, that brings us to the second part. So this first part, does this really helps you understand and explain that this has been the redemption that God has offered the world since it was first initiated right after the fall. The second thing it does, and perhaps the most helpful today, is that it helps us understand God's love, our personal identity, and the purpose that God has for us. In other words, understanding God's covenant, it improves all of our perspective of all of those things. Many of you, I know even in this room, you believe that God has a love that is so universal that it relegates God to a place in heaven that he's frustrated. If only more of you would trust me. And you can't see that when you understand the doctrine of the covenant because his love is indeed effectual. When he sets his love upon people, they become saved. When he brings them into his covenant, they establish relationship with him. And it understands an effectual nature of love that I think makes it far more meaningful than you thought before, where God has generally just made everyone savable, and you just had the wisdom to come in out of the rain, and no one else did. His love is much more powerful and effectual than that. The second thing I think that this does, and perhaps even more significantly for us today, is it, it gives us identity. There's a sense in which we know, along with everyone that has ever believed in God and his redemptive purpose in the world, we believe that we're here on purpose. Paul says to Acts 17 to the Areopagus, in Acts 17 in, on Mars Hill, he said that God determined the boundary of your inhabitation in the point in time that you should live. None of you are here because of an accident. Now, that doesn't mean you weren't conceived by accident. That just means that there's a purpose for which you're in this world. That was supposed to be a far bigger joke than that. <laughs> but in the end, this allows us to step back and to say, if it wasn't for the identity and the purpose that God has for me, I, 
I wouldn't be alive. I can't tell you after 25 years of helping people on the verge of suicide, despair, frustration, wondering why they're here, that this alone gives them a sense of purpose and identity. And that brings me to the third and the last point. What do we do? Where is the direction and purpose that we have for our lives? And this is probably the most distinctive element of our ministry at L2. I know it is of my ministry. Because we believe in the power and the authority of Scripture to speak to every part of our lives, it's allowing us not only to understand our own identity, it helps us understand what God would have us to be. I'm a husband. I'm not a wife. So God speaks to my life differently than as if I was a wife. I'm a father as opposed to a single man. So I have an obligation because of the voice of God as a father to children and now grandchildren. I'm a pastor, and James says, let not many of you purport to be teachers because as such you will occur a stricter judgment. You out, most of you out there will never give an account that I will before God. But you see, that's the voice of God defining Russ McKendry. And it, it enables me to understand, in my, understand myself, but it also enables me to understand a direction and purpose that God has for my life that he promises by his Holy Spirit to attend. And so he's not calling me to a fool's errand. He's calling me into a purpose that he's already purposed his Holy Spirit to stand together with me, just like he does you. And so in every sense of the word, these covenants push you into your life. They don't take you out. They don't cause you despair and confusion and questioning as to what God's will is for your life. They yield and they render you more capable and more intentional and more intelligent about who you are and what your purpose is on this world than anything before. And that is the initiated redemption that we're seeing throughout the Old Testament. So the Old Testament enables us to understand how God started all of this. And it shows us a pattern that not only has continued throughout the Old Testament, it continues into the New Testament. And so in many ways, these two sermons that I'm going to preach this week and next week, one, they look like a t-ball. First you have the stand, and then you have the ball on top of the stand. And then two weeks today, from today, when James gets back up, he gets to hit the ball. Because everything in the Scripture is heading towards this convergence. It's God fulfilling his promise to restore everything that was fallen. Every dream that you've ever had about what's right, what's decent, every sorrow that has filled your heart when someone calls you and says the test result came back positive and it's terminal cancer, and that sense of, oh, all of that wrong will one day be put right. And the fact that he uses us in that process is simply amazing because he's using us the same way he's used everyone, all of his people throughout history. It's truly remarkable. The covenantal demand for faith this is the most important thing I'm going to say today. The covenantal demand for your faith, for repentance, for your obedience, has become the way in which the Lord leads you 
and understanding yourself and doing the things that he purposed for you to do. It's not pushing you away. It's not making you less of what you would be. It's making you the finest person that you could possibly be because you're willing to listen to the God who made you. Okay, all right, let's take a couple questions and then we'll be done. Since Jesus, I'm going to leave off the butt. Since Jesus said in Matthew, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Does this mean that we need to follow the laws of the Old Testament? I alluded to that briefly. It's a very good question, by the way. Um, I've never met a human being, not even one that's trying to be facetious, that would try to tell me that that he or she could be right by starting to build a boat in her backyard. And so there's a sense that we can see a transition and a change in some of the covenants as opposed to some of the others. But how does that compare to Moses saying that in the, the social political law of Israel, they needed to build a parapet around the top of the roof so people didn't fall off and either be killed or injured. What, what does that say about when he said, don't, when you, when you harvest your, your, your crops, don't harvest all the way to the corners. You leave those for the people that are passing through. And for those of you passing through, you can go in and eat as much as you want, but you can't put it in a basket or gather it. You see, there were social norms that still abide. And so it takes a lot of work to be able to say, well, which ones abide to us today? And which ones do not? And this is where I would, I would look to, uh, Greg Bonson did a, just a gnomon's work in really beginning to say, okay, here's how a part of it fits and a part of it doesn't. I don't believe that you can take those statements out of Matthew 5 and to say Jesus is saying there's no more rules. I don't think you can. Now, there's been some parts of the church that said, okay, after that, all we have is this new set of rules. I don't think that's the most accurate either. And so there's a way that we have to know the Lord. There's a way that we have to sincerely trust him. Now, this is where an old friend of mine, Ken Marcelino, used to always use this phrase. He said, if the Lord's in it, act like he's in it. Trust him. Allow him to speak to you. But if you're trying to find out what the Lord has for you and you refuse to read the Bible, there's a contradiction in your statements. There should be a point in which you're able to say, I'm willing to hear you. I'm willing to listen to you. And I think by doing that, we can trust that the Holy Spirit is animating our faith towards the lives that he would have each one of us live. Next question. Okay. All right. All right, let's pray. We're going to take communion. Um, this communion process is one that Paul was very explicit in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, you need, you need to take some time to examine yourself. And basically, that was a period of time in which you could assess yourself according to some standard. And I think in services like this, it's just you contemplating what you've just heard. How do you line up? How does your life measure up? And over the years, I've heard many people say, well, I just couldn't take communion because I was so convicted after I assessed my life for a few moments because I found some things that were wrong. I usually ask them, have you ever taken communion? Because you should always be able to find things that are wrong. 
Things that are not as consistent as they should be with the Word of God. But you see, in those moments, you know exactly what to do. He who confesses his or her sin, I will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what we do with it. And so by coming up, we're not saying we're sinless. By coming up, we're saying we need this. This broken body and the shed blood. That's who I am. Father, I would ask that these would be moments in which you would, you would just allow us to think deeply about a pattern that so many of us have never been shown. A pattern of redemption that is so consistent, it's truly astounding because you show yourself to be a faithful, loving Lord. And I pray that those of us that would call ourselves Christians would have a capacity and a gratitude this morning that surpasses anything that we've ever known because it was you who saved me, not because I was looking, but because of your purpose and design. And so help us to love you. Help us to be able to see these things that we might be able to put our Bibles back together again and the fragmented pieces would begin to come back together and we'd be able not only to see the story of our faith, but we'd be able to understand who we are and the purpose for which you put us on this earth to accomplish your redemption. So thank you for those things now. We commit this time to you. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.